This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Hammerhead. The Hammerhead Karoo 2 is a GPS cycling computer like no other, which can unlock your rides to the full potential. James, which Karoo 2 feature stands out for you? Well, Joe, it's Karoo's mapping and navigation capabilities. No matter where in the world I'm riding my bike, Hammerhead says I can ride in full confidence with turn-by-turn navigation, have my route instantly rerouted if I decide to explore a new road, and even find a local coffee shop with its cycling-specific points-of-interest mapping feature. For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom colour kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. All you have to do is visit hammerhead.io right now, add all three items to your cart, and use the promo code CYCLISTPOD at the checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive, limited-time offer only for our podcast listeners, so don't forget to use our special promo code. That's hammerhead.io, promo code CYCLISTPOD. That's promo code CYCLISTPOD, and get your Karoo 2 and your free custom colour kit and premium water bottle today. Hello, welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Hammerhead. I'm your host, Joe Robinson, sitting in front of a copy of the board game Risk is Mr. James Spender. Hello, Joe. I've never actually played Risk. That's an interesting anecdote we'll get onto in a second. And on today's show, we have a man who does many things, including writing a column for the Cyclist Magazine, Mr. Phil Cavell. But before we get onto a conversation that covers a lot of stuff, including booze, Uh, eating, bike riding, and how to combine all of the above, me and James are going to run down some of the things that we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. James, you've never played Risk. I also own a a version, well, not a version, a, a copy of the board game Risk, and I've never played it either because there's never anyone who wants to play it with me. Do you suffer from the same issue? No, because I'm the person that doesn't want to play it with you. I don't know where it came from. I think it's around... I've lived here for an awfully long time, and I've lived with various different people. And I think it's a relic. It's one of those things that someone else has left here. And I've just kind of kept, because there are worse things to have on your shelves. Because look at us talking about it. But I've never actually successfully... I tell a lie. I did set it up once, about age 10, at Tom Fenton's house. And then his mum cooked us Goodfellas pizzas, which at the time were kind of like groundbreaking technology because it was a bit like getting a pizza hut out of your oven. And then we just ate those. Um, and then I remember it, I remember it very well. It was then time to go and we okay, had to clear yeah. it away. So haven't ever played risk. Um, don't really enjoy board games if I'm honest. That's fair enough. But that box that houses risk would be a really good place to hide like cash in. Cause that's the sort of place where people wouldn't look if they came into your house and were looking for cash. Yeah, that's true. Where would you, where else? Have you got cash hidden? Because you're in a bedroom. Do you have cash hidden under your bed? Have you got 500 pounds out at the moment? Cause I've been told we should all have 500 quid in cash just because of the volatility of the world out there. I have cash in this bedroom. Yeah. That I recently won gambling. Gambling. Well, yep. you're over 18, so that's fine. I'm over 18. <laughs> so that's fine. But this bed's an Ottoman. An Ottoman, so it em- is, it an, is it an Ottoman Empire? It's, well, it is an empire. The size of the space that we've got underneath keeps all our stuff like luggage, um, shoes. There's a lot of shoes underneath. I bet there. It is. Mostly Wrapping yours. paper, yes. uh, Christmas decorations, yes. stuff like that. Yes. 
um, because we don't have like a obviously we're in a, a flat or an apartment uh, if you don't want to sound if you want to sound proper uh, so we don't have something like a loft or a basement no things that I aspire to one day no, nothing nothing to convert no nothing to nothing to well convert. okay well that's good I won't ask you where it's kept because um, we already know that you live in Swanley and you'll be an easy man to track down in your apartment because not that many apartments in Swanley. It's a, mo- it's, a, it's a modern introduction to Swanley, isn't it? Like when Milton Keynes got cable television. Yes. And you know what, though? Um, breaking into my uh, abode would be really disappointing because it's only 50 quid. <laughs> so, it's a lot of effort um, for not much money. Um, I could just give you a tip that you could go put on at the bookies yourself. How did you win it? Out of interest? Uh, it, was on the, it was on the Grand National. On the Grand National? Oh, there we go. Yeah, because... Cycling all comes back around, doesn't it? Uh, a horse yeah. called Santini placed. Oh, was it wearing was it wearing little bib shorts? It was that were um, slightly smaller than British sizes. Yes, go up a size. Yes, and possibly even <laughs> possibly even strangely white with rainbow bands on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's delightful. I'm glad that you've enjoyed some success at the GGS. Thank you. Although I can't condone the Grand National. I just just throw it out there. That's fine. That's fine. You're entitled to your opinion. Um, what are you liking, James? What am I liking? Um, well, at the moment, I've got a fearfully expensive bike, which is is quite nice because one is never going to own a fearfully expensive bike. Um, it's an Open Mind or M I N dot D from the fella what started Savella back in the day, Gerard Vrooman, yeah. which is a great name Vroom. for yeah Vrooman. Um, and Gerard as well, Gerard, Gerard Fruman. Don't think he's actually a Pudlian. However, he started uh, Cervelo with uh, Phil White, and then he went on to start Open with Andy Kessler, who was once upon a time the CEO of BMC. So these guys have cycling previous. Anyway, the bike is about £16,000, which is really quite expensive and presents a problem when I get in the lift because I live in an appartement, just like you, and people go, they look at the whatever bike I've got, which ultimately isn't some uh, Mad Max cracked out e-bike conversion and I'm not a delivery driver, so they're always quite interested. Um, and they go, inevitably, how much is that, mate? And I don't want to lie, because I'd like to think of myself as an honest person, but I also feel like it is not the space to announce that the thing you are holding is worth more money than you could, you know, than I'll probably earn in a year. Yeah, but I think a seasoned a seasoned thief is going to be put off by the fact that it's sixteen thousand pounds. Do you think? Because that means that it's very unique, and therefore, even like the way that they sell things, I think that's a hard sell for them. It's in the same way that you know car thieves don't go after Lamborghinis; they go after Range Rovers because Range Rovers are ten a penny, but worth a lot. Whereas Lamborghinis, what there's probably a hundred in the country. In the same way that, like, if I stole your specialised S-Works Tarmac SL7... No, there's loads of those, mate. They're all over Surrey. There's loads, exactly. They're all over the place. Whereas if you took my open mind, which you've got, which has got its carbon saddle and it looks, like, proper tricked out, you put, you know, put word about, all the bike shops in in the country could know about that being sort of floated about quite quickly. But what if it goes aboard? Because I went to Iceland. I went to Iceland once, right? Iceland is a tiny country of three hundred and twenty or thousand, three hundred and sixty thousand people. You know, you know, you know, six degrees of separation. Yes. Apparently, in Iceland, everyone's only one degree of separation from someone who knows Bjork. 
I watched a brilliant thing about Bjork once and it had this old clip of her and she was holding up, she's looking at TV and then she was holding up this PCB, a printed circuit board. And she was like, I love this. It's, it's so amazing because inside it's like a tiny city. And she's like looking at the um, capacitors and the little microchips on the circuit board for the television. And she's more interested in the fact that the inside of a telly looks like a tiny city than the fact that a TV can broadcast stuff, which I thought was very sweet. Anyway, um, speaking of six degrees of separation, just circling just circling back to my brilliantly shoehorned in anecdote about Iceland. When I was there, they were experiencing a crime wave of people nicking bicycles. And you might think, how do you nick a bike on Iceland and get away with it? Because there ain't that many people. Yeah. But it's because they're being stolen to order and smuggled Especially out. Especially when so many mums are shopping there. So I know. They'd be looking around. And there are fewer more vigilant people in life than a mum. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So despite that, somehow they managed to usurp the uh, vigilant gaze of the mothers around Iceland. Mm. Incidentally, Iceland has an Iceland. Does it? Yes. Also, you can't buy alcohol in, sh- in supermarkets in Iceland, can you? You have to go to actual alcohol shops, you, and it's extortionately expensive, isn't it? It is extortionately expensive, and yes, that is true. Um, yeah, no, that's tr- yeah, it's not. It's not great. It's the. It's in the bars. It's really expensive. You can pay like twelve quid for a pint. So they all do happy hour, <sighs> which is more like seven or eight pounds for a pint. But anyway, so basically. Bikes were getting stolen, smuggled out in containers to other countries. That is, that is where the market was. That's why I fear for my open mind California project at sixteen thousand pounds. Because what if I was, what if it was taken from me and sold to some nefarious, I don't know, insert a country here that we don't want to offend. So that's the thing. Anyway, it's quite a nice bike because um, it should be, shouldn't it? It's quite a nice bike. So I've been enjoying that, and I've also been enjoying the lottery of oranges. Mm which is unlike the lottery of the Grand National. Okay. You, you buy all of the oranges and you take them home and you bought them based on colour, just like when you back a Grand National horse and size and also what you can afford. And after that, it's a complete lottery whether or not each of those oranges is going to be a good orange, average orange or a bad orange. Recently, I've had a spate, three good oranges in a row. Oh, yeah. That, my friend, is very pleasing. That is good. What, nice and sweet, juicy. It's just a good combination of sweet, juicy pistules, which are the tiny, tiny bits. Yes. Like mini segments inside the segments, they're called pistules. So you need those to kind of explode in an effervescence of orangeness. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll tell you what I'm not liking in a minute. I'm going to ask you what you're liking first and disliking. Um, so what I'm liking at the moment... Actually, I can tell you what I disliked. Before we got onto this uh, call, James, I was mm. out on a ride and my lunch break, and I got hit by a pigeon. What? Yep, a pigeon flew into me. Actually, I rode down the street where the pigeon was standing. One way street, wasn't it? Pigeon got spooked. Pigeon Mm. did that thing where they start to fly off at sort of like waist height. Yeah. And it just flew directly into me. Um, I was fine. The pigeon was fine. But I shrieked. I shrieked like a child. I shrieked like somebody in a 60s, 70s George Romero horror film. Oh, really? Good reference. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Um and it was terrifying. I was fine. Did you exchange details with the pigeon? No, he but, went off. It was a hit and run. Really? Yeah, typical. yeah. He hit me and went off. Oh, no. Bloody typical pigeons. I, um, think, that, I think that the last two years of uh, on and off lockdowns has made the pigeon brain lazy. And well, they, actually, they, they say that um, there was an increase in roadkill because 
animals got confidence from how quiet certain roads were during the first sort of six months of lockdown and then there was there was animals that were born in that spring of lockdown and were like well there are you know these roads I can walk upon and then there was a huge spate of you know badgers and foxes and and the like being killed in the lanes around the UK. And I'd, I'd say that is a bigger problem than worrying about the, our children who are born in lockdown, who are developing difficulties making social bonds and coming to terms with learning um, speech. Correct. I'd say that the yeah, that's a larger problem that should be mm. there should be more news attention on that. So I'd, I'd like to think that we're shining that light on the plight of the humble badger and his bumbling idiot friends. Yeah, um, but what I am liking is um, Vimto squash. Oh yeah. Old school. Yeah, just because it's basically that it's, you know, you can go and buy your fancy electrolyte drinks for cycling or you could just make yourself a Vimto squash. Which one's better? Well, the electrolytes have the salts that you sort of lose when you sweat, but the Vimto has the sugar and it tastes delicious. So when you like are really suffering on a climb, you get your bead on, you take a little toot from it and you get a bit of Vimto. Tooting your bead on. That should be that could be the name of your memoirs. Tooting my bead on. Yeah, it's a Vimto. And if I feel a bit posh or it's on club card, maybe some Ribena squash. Ooh, mm. very nice. Again, yeah. Ribena's an odd one, isn't it? I'm not even sure who owns it. It's like... Uh, it's, um, it's, it's the Lucasade. Lucasade oh, Suntor. It? Yeah, Suntory. Yeah. That is what... I mean, that's a, portf- that's a strange portfolio, isn't it? Lucasade, again, a real outlier. But a core, you know, core market. The core part of British society is the Lucasade. Yeah. I could tell whether or not I was ill at home based on whether or not I was drinking a Ribena or a Lucasade. If it was a Ribena day, I was fine. If I was drinking Lucasade... original. Still the best hangover cure. It's the best it hangover is. cure. It's to, to this day, I'll still go get myself a 500 mil if I've got a bit of a hangover or I feel a bit under the weather. Yeah, well, there you go. There you go, James. Okay, so, so you know, other than other than that, tell me, tell me what's bad, man. Uh, well, I told you, getting hit by a pigeon. Oh, okay, tell me what's good. The Vimto squash. You got to have more than that. No, that's it. I was looking for. I think that I thought. I, was, I guess I was sensing some high. I mean, yeah, some kind of like higher and lowers because the thing, the problem, the problem I'm facing, Jay, is I'm slightly distracted, as you might be able to tell. The thing that I'm very much disliking is this is your last episode, uh, which is why I was hoping for a little bit more from you. If I was honest, something a little bit more exciting than Vimto, something a little bit worse than being hit by a pigeon. All that was a good story, I grant you. Um, but yeah, I'm. I'm sad, man. Uh, you've, you've, you're going somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, dear listener, I'm leaving not only the Cyclist Magazine podcast, but Cyclist Magazine after five, five years. Five, yes, five whole, five whole, often very difficult years. But mm-hmm. it's been, you know, for us. But it's been good for you, I think. I think you've probably learned a lot from people like myself. Fountains of knowledge. Yeah, you'll probably miss people like me. Yeah. Uh, you probably won't find people like me in your new workplace. Probably not. And there's every chance that you'll realise that you made a huge mistake. But yeah. but we probably won't be able to get you back. And that won't be because of not wanting you. It'll just be the fiscal situation. You can't walk back into an old job. It doesn't work like that, mate. So, you know, I, mean, I hope you're sure. I mean, our current tech editor did that, but that's uh, <laughs> <laughs> over that. <laughs> well, no, in all seriousness, um, it is terribly sad news for me as your co-host, for me as your friend, for me as your colleague. 
just for me, really, because this is all about me. But um, it's also really sad for our listeners. My mum is my mum literally is bereft. She even I texted her and said this is happening, and she's oh. used the word bereft. I'm and sorry. She, she used the weepy smiley face, which isn't a smiley face, but it's the other one. But when it's being sad and weepy, which I think says it all. Yeah. However. I'm not going to say where you're going because you can say that or not. I don't know if we're allowed to advertise that on this podcast. It's not anything in direct contravention to the rules. But anyway, it's kind of neither here nor there. You are going somewhere bigger and better and brighter. And you thoroughly deserve that, man. And I think you'll be really good at it because you're basically annoyingly good at everything you do. Wow. Um, And yeah, things won't be the same without you. But it is, yeah, I'm proud to know you, dude. You smashed it. Thank you very much, James. Very touching. And it's been a blast doing this podcast with you. Um, from two years ago, sitting with a pair of Apple headphones, I was producing it. I was editing still, it Still sitting with a pair of Apple headphones. Still, still the same <laughs> headphones, but we've got an actual mic. We do. But talking about, I looked back and we were talking about um, I, like tattoos that people in the Peloton had. And we rambled on for an hour with no guest. To, you know, two years later, we had some great guests, people like Tyler Hamilton, Greg Lamond, Christian Guru Murphy. Yeah, it's been fun. So The pantheon of greats. People will look back at this one day and make a Wikipedia page, I'd imagine. Yeah, this was like 40 Towers. It only lasted for uh, two series, but it's among the greatest sitcoms of all time. It's what, this, that's how I'll be remembered. <laughs> yeah. the greatest podcasts Britain has ever produced. We'll be referenced by other podcasts. It's one of those ones, you know how like uh, Brass Eye mm. didn't really hit the mainstream, but it, all the, it's the comics sitcom, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. Like, oh, yeah. Well, Brass Eye was actually, if, if it weren't for Brass Eye, you wouldn't have had this and that and this. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like the same here. We, yeah, exactly. <laughs> we are, we're the podcasters podcast. Well, actually, I mean, we're, prob- we're the mum's podcast. I mean, let's be honest. I think there's a large, there's a disproportionately large number of mums out there listening to us. I don't know why. But I know that some of them are ours. Exactly. So thanks, thanks, mothers. <laughs> um, yeah, but so there we have it, listener. Your last episode. <laughs> for now, for now, it may come back. Um, but uh, we should get into the interview with Phil Cavell, Cavill, Cavill, um, because it's actually really insightful and helpful. You say that like they often aren't. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, it's been a pleasure. Cheers. Joe just asked me uh, before we came on how I would describe you and I said probably a cycling polymath and Joe said okay I'll leave it up to you and I thought I'll probably leave it up to Phil so Phil could you describe yourself to us how would you appear on a CV um bloody hell cyclist lover of dogs Father to my daughter, husband to my wife, um, sometime writer, Gemini, chaotic. That's pretty. That's pretty good. Two things you touched on there. Big things, obviously, for a cycling podcast. Cyclist, and that encompasses racing at Eastway back in the day, and also moving into the professional side of things in terms of. Um, the industry with bike fitting and being would I be right in describing you as a bike fitting pioneer with your business partner Julian I think that's fair yeah natural modesty makes me 
slightly bridle at that, but I guess that's probably fair in the sense that we were probably the first in Europe, um, certainly in the UK. So, yes, I suppose that is true. And then most recently, you've written a book, which I have in my hand, actually, um, The Midlife Cyclist, uh, which is Bloomsbury. And it's your guide to keeping going cycling um, for, you know, 40 plus riders, men and women. And it kind of really is a very uh, broad church that, yeah, speaks to your polymath ability, I think. It has sections such as The Aging Cyclist, Growing Old Disgracefully, Will I Die If I Cycle Too Much, essentially, um, Midlife Performance, Too Late for Speed, or Can You Actually Get Faster, um, and Bikes, Bike Fit, and Biomechanics, Mindfulness. So it's all there. So we wanted to kind of touch on quite a lot of points um, in that book, but Joe's got a very specific question that he'd like to ask you first to kick off with. So over to you, Joseph. My, my starting point, Phil is in like a lot of our listeners I will assume I've entered into two big events since this spring so in March I'm running a half marathon and then in April I'm riding the Tour of Flanders Sportif and in a panicked state on January 1st I thought the best thing I could do was to knock alcohol on the head until these events are out of the way and what I want to know is how big a benefit that decision could have on my performance on those events, specifically the Tour of Flanders Sportive from a, a cyclist's point of view. How old are you, Joe? I'm 27, but I feel 45 with, since the pandemic began. The thing is, Joe, you're 27. You're immortal, frankly, <laughs> at the moment. You're just you're, you're absolutely at your peak. Um, you know, you're, you're even, even in the evolutionary environment, even in the ancestral environment, you're completely at your peak. I mean, yes, um, alcohol is a toxin. Ethanol is a toxin. Um, and as such, your body is obligated to deal with it immediately with a sense of urgency. It has virtually no, well, no known benefits, performance or health despite the fact that there was this, you know, there was this assumption that a little bit of alcohol did you good. That really can't be substantiated. So it, giving up alcohol, for, for you, at your age, I would suggest giving up alcohol, the biggest benefit will be that you will sleep better. Um, and by that, I mean that alcohol interrupts sleep architecture. So if you think about the stages of sleep, one through five and they're blended but so stage one light sleep and then stage two slightly deeper sleep and then going into slow wave sleep and then after slow wave sleep slow wave sleep you get into um rem sleep rapid eye movement sleep and alcohol interrupts that architecture and it means you get into what's called rem rebound where you you never actually go into rem sleep you sort of kind of come awake at three in the morning sweaty needing a drink and some paracetamol and so you in a sense you're bouncing around in and out of these stages of sleep without ever going into very deep slow wave sleep or into rem so alcohol it's thought 
and there's some evidence to suggest that that alcohol interrupts the, the architecture of your sleep. And so as a 27-year-old, probably what you will uh, experience is better sleep, I would suggest. Um, and that's uniform. I think that's uniform throughout the age groups. It, it, at 60, I don't need any less or any more sleep than you. How long have you given up for now? So I've, what's this, to about six weeks. I thought the biggest notice, notable aspect would be weight. So in those six weeks, I've also dropped four and a half kilos um, without making substantial changes to like, you know, doing silly stuff like cutting out bread or such. And I put that down to the alcohol as opposed to anything else. How much did you sleep? Sorry, how much did you drink before you gave up? I would I would say I was an archetypal binge drinker that I didn't drink Monday through to Thursday, but drank heavily Friday and Saturdays. Over five pints a Saturday per Saturday. Um, maybe sometimes getting to double digits. Yeah, you were professional then. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, then then yes, of course. So that's the other thing about alcohol because it's because it's an obligate toxin. The body is obliged to deal with it first. So if you if you drunk a lot of alcohol and the next day went out and did some exercise, you wouldn't necessarily be burning fat as a fuel source because your body's trying to still metabolize the alcohol from the night before, possibly. So the, the, there's the, in that sense, alcohol doesn't sit or excessive amounts of alcohol don't necessarily sit very well with exercise because when you're trying to train, you're, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to, as far as you can, metabolize fat as a fuel source. And if you've got loads of alcohol still in your body your body's just trying to get rid of that uh, because it's, you know it doesn't it doesn't like it thinks it's a toxin so in that sense yes yes you're you i was that makes total sense and that's a lot of, that's quite a lot of weight to drop in a very short amount of time simply by just stopping drinking that's quite phenomenal actually so does that that kind of mean then that your your training is massively impinged in terms of like your kind of calorific spend if you like and where your body's deriving those calories from if you have a substantial amount of alcohol in your bloodstream from the night before. So if you did, I don't know, um, 300 kilometers a week and you weren't drinking, that would create significantly more weight loss than if you did 300 kilometers per week uh, for, you know, for four weeks and you were having three glasses of wine every night just because of the way that your body is trying to metabolize the alcohol as opposed to working on metabolizing fat and other fuel sources. Yeah, that's right. I think those are the pathways that get interrupted. And I think more as you get older, I think more at my age, it's more significant because we then run into problems of if we're drinking, um, we, you know, we get, it's, it can also inter- interfere with our heart rhythms. Um, but for you at your age, how old are you, James? 37. 37. So yeah, again, you're still immortal. Um, <laughs> yeah. But the thing, the thing is, yeah. So what alcohol at that point, what alcohol is doing is it's, it's obliging your body to deal with it first. So if you're, if you're trying to train your body to use a certain, certain fuel, i.e. fat to metabolize fat, which is aerobic exercise is all about training our body to metabolize fat, really, then alcohol can certainly interrupt that. And also what alcohol could be doing is interrupting your sleep architecture. Even at 37, it could be interrupting your sleep architecture. So sleep and alcohol um, are quite closely um, related, if you like. They are, and that's why I've dealt with sleep and I think alcohol in consecutive columns. We dealt with alcohol first. Um, 
absence makes the heart grow stronger. And then we've dealt with sleep in, in two subsequent columns. They are quite closely related. But having said that, I mean, the, you know, the benefits of alcohol, and I think if you discount the whole polyphenols, flavonoids, and all the, all the stuff about one drink does you good, and it's, you know, if, if you kind of move that to one side, whether the data is clear about that or not. I think the benefits of alcohol are social. It makes you feel good and makes you get on with your friends and family and have a good time. And that can't be discounted. That's That has a benefit. There's no question about that. That has a benefit. But those are, to me, those are the benefits. I don't see any health benefits or performance benefits. I start the column on um, alcohol with that anecdote about, you know, that young, young 18, 17, 18 year old, vomiting over his tent and then going on to win his race i propose the question is that because alcohol bestowed a mechanistic benefit on his performance or he just overcome overcame that because he was young and talented it's absolutely the latter yeah that was i mean that, that was something i came across once on um a kind of press junket with a cyclocross rider who you might know actually because he was trek at one point and you were bike fitting for trek or, or still do uh, Tim Johnson, U.S. cyclocross racer. Yes, yes, I didn't come across him, but I know who he is. Yes, yeah, and he kind of uh, part jokingly, part quite proudly, pronounced uh, one morning that he'd had one of his best. We, you know, we'd, we'd had a few drinks the night before. People were a bit hungover. He'd said he'd had one of his best ever race days when he was incredibly hungover, and I was wondering about that. Um, a, you know, is that possible? Is there some kind of, as you say, mechanistic or psychological benefit? Probably not. He's just a very, very good cyclocross race that was US number one at the time. But more than that, for your average person, such as myself or Joe, you have a skinful on Friday night or Saturday night. Can you actually ride off a hangover? Yes, I suppose you can, because you, you, your body will, in a sense, be obliged to deal with the alcohol first, the calories from alcohol first. Um, so it will deal with those. It'll try and get rid of the toxins of alcohol first. So in that sense, I suppose you are riding riding off the hangover. Uh, it, it's easier and less problematic at your age than it is at my age. At my age, 60, riding off a hangover doesn't seem to be an immensely good idea to me. Um, but certainly at 27 and 37, I did it many, many times. Yeah. Yeah. I, I noticed that I always sweat a lot more when riding hungover but on on another sense and this could probably be psychological and I, there's probably no evidence behind this but I always feel like I can push harder and I don't know if that's because you're still desensitized to some forms of pain when you've got alcohol in the system I remember playing rugby when I was a bit younger hungover and I'd always swear that I'd have a better game but I don't know if that was because I was less fearful because there was still alcohol in my system so were you were you playing drunk, Joe, or were you playing hungover? I would say hungover. I may have played drunk okay. once, but I've, it was mainly okay. hungover. And I've ridden hungover. I've hit. I've got up and I've I've ridden after a night out, and and I've not been drunk, but I've had the you know the headache, the the feeling, the feeling of you. We are all experienced, but then being on a climb and sort of having a perception that I can keep pushing for longer because. And then in my head, I, I sort of associate with that the fact that I'm, you know, hungover and the pain in my head is outweighing the pain in my legs. So, Yeah. And, and I think that's interesting. And I think there is I mean, there is definitely some research going on about at the moment in terms of um, perception of pain and the ability to push through training loads. That's definitely a current subject. 
and, and a lot of people think that the only limitation of our ability is actually our perception of pain and where we have our, you know, there's that thing with race horses, isn't there? They train out what's called the universal, the central governor, and they'll just literally run themselves to death uh, because they lack a central governor. And then the question is, well, do human beings have a central governor? And is that true? You can breed that out or you can pharmaceutically uh, excise that from our constitution, unknown. Um, but certainly some people seem to have the ability to run very close to the red line of their central governor um, and, and sort of bury their perception of pain. Those days will come where you simply can't get onto that climb and, and, and enjoy your hangover. Uh, it, it just, you know, that, that, is, that is a function of being young. Your body's at its peak right now. It's at its optimum. It's more excuses for my dad to use whenever we go out riding together, is what it is. So, Phil, you sort of linked there how important alcohol and sleep are as a combination. One, one sort of question to ask is, what happens to our brains and bodies when we sleep? What, what are we doing to improve ourselves by going to sleep? Yeah, I mean, the simple answer to that, Joe, is nobody knows. Um, no, but it's you know not not everything is known about sleep. Um, I mean, I, I in in the in the columns I've been interviewing a fascinating person called Dr. Charles Samuels who runs the uh, Human Performance Sleep Centre in Calgary, and he's very kindly given me two two sessions. Uh, he's allocated me two sessions to interview him, which is I'm, I'm very lucky to have that. Um, and a lot of the output of those sessions is going into the into the columns um, but not everything is known but what is known what is absolutely known is that for performance weight control recovery cognitive health sleep is absolutely number one and if you remember sky dragged that pod around that articulated pod around in whatever tour it was i mean they they very quickly knew that the most rested leader team leader who got the most sleep would probably win because sleep is absolutely the crucial thing for human recovery and performance. Number one, you know, ahead of nutrition, probably. As human beings, like all mammals, we need to sleep. Uh, and unlike my dog, for example, who had his walk at 5.45 this morning and will now sleep all day until, I, until he gets his evening walk at 7 o'clock, you know, we don't have that luxury. We live very, very busy lives. and We probably don't sleep enough. And what Dr. Charles Samuel says is we should start looking at sleep requirement in a, as a weekly allocation. Think about how much how much you need a night and then times it by seven. And that's your weekly requirement. Now, we're pro we all kind of sit between six and 10 hours. How much sleep do you think you need a night, Joe, to function properly? You'll probably have an idea about that. Yeah, about I'd say I can function six, seven. Is right so 50 get, hours yeah. a week and how many hours a week do you work 40 hours a week so we're we're at 90 now out of the 168 hours allocated to you for life over a week you've now taken care of 90 of them and you've now got you know you've now got 70 to 80 left to do everything else every single thing so you know that and that's how one should think about sleep requirement is literally you have to get your 50 hours a week um to function to live, to recover. Um, and what sleep is doing, there's so much that is known about sleep and so much that isn't known about sleep. But what sleep is doing is it's, it's, it's necessarily switching you from um, a state um, of 
being uh, where you're in sympathetic arousal to parasympathetic. So the autonomic nervous system has a flight and fight syndrome, and then it has a rest and digest um, element. And in sleep, it's crucial that we somehow bring ourselves, damp down our sympathetic arousal. And one of the modern, modern things about the way we live today, most of us, is we live too much, too much of our lives in sympathetic arousal, too much inflammation, uh, inflammation and information. You know, we drink too much coffee, we drink too much alcohol, we get too stressed, we live in an agitated state, and all these things ramp up our sympathetic nervous system. And so sleep is even more important as an antidote to that sympathetic into, into that sympathetic state arousal. And that's in the book when I deal in chapter eight in what's called the mindful cyclist, thinking about this in very kind of think about it in sort of medical terms, if you like. You know, we don't want to spend our whole life in in a with our in, in sympathetic, our sympathetic nervous system is being ramped up. I'm not, do you know what I've I, I've rambled for so long that I've got no idea what the question was. <laughs> no, you've, to, you've 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 totally addressed uh, addressed that question. But within your answer is something I'm not. You know, I have come across this idea that you can't bank sleep. Is that the case, or is it actually not? Is what you're part of what you're saying that realist? We should be kind of taking pulling out a little bit and looking at our sleep not per night but per week. So perhaps if we get only five hours on a Tuesday, but we make up for that with eight hours on the Wednesday, then we've got a nice, uh, whatever that six and a half, seven and a half hours in between. And that counts. Or is that just not the case? You can't make up for yesterday's sleep with tomorrow's. Yeah, I think you can. I think in the short term, you absolutely can and you absolutely should. And I think that's what Dr. Charles Samuels is saying, um, and, uh, is that you should think like that. Yeah, if you've, you know, if you've lost three hours on the Thursday, you know, try and make it up on the Friday. But, you know, Joe needs his 50 hours a week, which is probably a minimum. You know, that only allows him seven hours a night. So he needs his 50 hours. And if he only had four hours one night, then he then he does need to think about um, and then you start thinking about, well, how does he do that? Is it a napping strategy? Does he need to have a start scheduling a nap? If he's scheduling a nap, when would that be? How would that be? How how long would it be for? So it's actually having a sleep strategy um, because it's absolutely so crucial for performance. Um, you know, look, you know, and I, I think I say in the, one of the sleep columns, you know, otherwise you end up like Margaret Thatcher, who got three hours of sleep and introduced the poll tax. So, you know, you, you you don't you don't want to be that person. This is very true. Can you oversleep though? Because I've and I and I know this is I've spoken to other people that are cyclists, runners, and uh, do sport, and they've said that they can feel just as lethargic, just as they they feel as if they can't perform as well if they've slept too long in comparison to if they've only got four hours. So I. You know, I and I feel if I say sleep for ten hours and I get a really good night's sleep, I can wake up and feel lethargic on the bike, not as reactive, and I feel better sometimes when I've had less sleep. Is that is there validity to that? Sleeping too much? Yeah, maybe. I think I think one of the things that that sleep is absolutely is known now is that sleep architecture and health and sleep. I hate the word term heat sleep hygiene but let's use it anyway it is that it's absolutely uh, umbilically attached to hunger and appetite control and weight control so people that don't sleep properly or sleep enough um 
are, are, are likely to gain weight and, and, and not use calories efficiently. So can you sleep too much? I don't know. Probably. I mean, you're, you're probably right. How much of that is psychological and how much of that is metabolic and physical? Unknown to me. You know, I'm not a sleep expert. I'm a, you know, I'm someone that's writing about this stuff. Um, so possibly I would suggest that getting too much sleep is less of a problem than not getting enough, certainly in terms of appetite control and weight control. And, and, and I think what it might be, are you, Joe, a natural night owl or a natural lark or are you somewhere in between? I'm 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 a I'm a morning morning person. I can easily wake up at five six if needed to. Right. So I think I think that's absolutely critical. And I think I think all the studies have shown that the knowing what you are in terms of your natural type, um, your natural avian type. So if you're a natural lark, you know you getting up at ten and then trying to perform on the bike isn't going to work. You know because your natural your natural avian phenotype is to be up at five. Um, and so you'll always perform, not always, but should, you'll probably perform better very early in the morning because that's your natural type. And and coaches now are, are devising training programs around their clients, natural avian phenotypes, the clever coaches. If someone's a natural night owl, you know, don't expect them to, to race really well or train really well at six in the morning because it's, it's it's a stretch for them. Um so I think probably what you're experiencing there is you're you're just working against your type. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. It does make sense. And I've and I've seen professional cyclists who some will be up and out at seven a.m. to do two hundred k, and then you'll get others that will prefer to do five hours in the afternoon and lounge about all morning and not do anything. And it's so. And that's not laziness, Joe. That's 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 them working with their. You know, that's probably them being sensible on their coach's advice, training within their natural predisposition. Well, I've always thought this is really unfortunate because I would, I would say I'm a night owl. So I want to stay up late. And I want to sleep in in the mornings. And for whatever reason, cycling has just orientated itself around dawn and even before. And particularly, I'm not somebody that has a coach or can dedicate a huge amount of time to training. Um, and I'm therefore feeling even more hamstrung when a sportive makes me wake up at half past five to get to the start pen for half past six. So what do, is there any way around that for me? Yeah, there is. Absolutely. And, and, and the fact that you know that is, is, is step number one. And I'm like you, James. I'm naturally a night owl, but I've just had to adapt because um, just the way I live and my commute and my life, it just I can't do it. So I'm, I've made myself into a Joe. Uh, I'm now a, uh, a lark. I'm, I'm, my alarm goes off at 5.30 every morning. I'm awake at 5.20 every morning, even on the weekends. But that what's not natural for me, I've had to make myself into that. So what you could do, if you know you've got an event that is coming up, then you should slowly move yourself to being the kind of person that can perform well at that time on that day. You can't do it in a week. You can't do it in a month, but you can do it over time. You know, you know, so that that would be a strategy. You know, if I was your coach and you would you you're aiming for the attack in July, I would definitely be trying to adapt you to somebody who naturally woke up at five and wanted to go and stand in the pissing rain at the start of, a, of an attack to tour. Um, <laughs> because 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 it'll be better for you. Yeah, you'll you'll enjoy, you'll perform higher, better, better, and you'll enjoy it more. No, that does that that does definitely make sense. I can I can see that. So do you think, can you adjust your chronotype that much or are you beholden to your nature forevermore? 
no you can you can uh, you can certainly play with your chronotype a bit yes yes yeah um i'm not sure if i mentioned that in the first column i think i did mention it in the first sleep column yes you can you can you know you can you can adjust your chronotype you can you know you you know you're, you're never going to be a joe uh, as i'm not but you know i've certainly over time learned to be a, a facsimile of joe oh, yeah be more joe I think that's the message from this book. Uh, doesn't yeah. everyone? Doesn't everyone need to be a Joe? <laughs> be more Joe. Be more Joe. Yeah. yeah. When we're talking about training, that's another interesting one. Um, yeah, as I said, I don't have a coach. Joe's not someone that um, you know. Joe. Joe can self motivate. Joe is almost uh, the strength of ten men. That he's just the strength of ten men. For myself, no proper coach, but often fixated on the thing that juts out just in front of my stem and various numbers on it. One of them being power as an amateur cyclist how well are we served by looking at uh, metrics and are there ones that we should be looking at but we're not i mean in, in my generation racing you know as a as a you know i, I only i peaked as a first cat it wasn't like i was naturally talented or very good you know i was just reasonable you know we didn't even think about power wasn't even literally wasn't thought about or considered at all and we're only going back one generation i mean i gave up racing in 2003 2004 it wasn't even thought about wasn't even considered never mind metricated and measured so but it doesn't mean that you know, to win races, I didn't have to produce quite a lot of power. I obviously did. Otherwise, it, you know, so it, it, it's almost like the measuring of it has given it some kind of resonance and importance. Um, you know, we produced power long before we started to learn how to measure it. So, you know, give it in proportion, James, um, is what I would say. Enjoy your riding. You know, uh, uh, accept your victories when you achieve your goals and you feel great and feel golden. But have some humility and accept that it wasn't your day when you didn't. Um, and I think that's almost one of my messages in the book is that, that, you know, don't expect things just to keep going up like this. That's not how that's not how we work as human beings. So so on that note, is there any point to say you take a, a, a cut, and, cut and dry amateur, someone like my dad, who's in his mid to late 50s. He's fairly fit for someone of that age, um, but he doesn't race. He'll never race. He'll go to the odd sportif. He'll do the odd long ride in the summer. Is there no point in him having power? Because ultimately it can become more detrimental than it's worth in terms of, as you said, always trying to chase an improvement and not accepting that actually, like life, your performance will ebb and flow. And some days you'll be able to get up a mountain in the Alps and feel good and some days you're going to feel like absolute garbage and you're riding through mud and that's just how how it goes slightly that joe what i would say about your dad is if he tracks power and it enables him to have some wisdom about what makes him perform better and what makes him perform worse and though and knowing what makes him perform better makes him happy then it's rational for him to track power if it just makes him neurotic about you know he can't join these dots then it's then it's you know it has limited use so i think it's almost like power to me is better used in retrospect oh look look i did really great on that day what goes before that well i slept really well i had a, a week off work and you know i you know i i lived really well and i ate really well and you know then you know that's as important really that information is important i slept really well i ate really well and i performed really well on that day oh look at my my average power was great oh the, or the, the power is the outcome of living well elsewhere 
So you can be proud that you hit 300 watts for five minutes because I slept for 50 hours this week and I didn't, you know, do a whole bottle of wine on Friday night and et cetera, et cetera. That's right. So I agree with you. Hitting the power for three, hitting 300 watts for five minutes, you know, was the output of other things. You didn't hit 300 watts for five minutes because you've been measuring power for five years. You hit 300 watts for other reasons. You hit 300 watts because you slept really well, you ate really, you know, you drank really well, you were rested, you were all those other, you know, you tra- your training was, you didn't overtrain. And the biggest impediment to, to people hitting what the, the numbers that they want to achieve is overtraining or training the wrong way, spending too long near the red line um, for, the, for the other things that are going on in their life, you know. Um, that's normally the impediment to people achieving what they want to achieve. Um, trying to just achieve these power numbers relentlessly all the time. And then, you know, training is, inf- is intrinsically in the moment, acutely inflammatory. Um, and so, and then only chronically anti-inflammatory. So you need to stress your body, but then the body needs to recover and relax and rebuild. Remember, we get performance and we get fit when we're resting, not when we're training. Accepting that, yes, something like power um, ebbs and flows and is not a ratchet. Does that also mean that there is a point where the returns become diminishing? And, you know, I'm having this conversation with my dad at the moment around um, him being a much, much older cyclist, 74. And, you know, the strength of my legs is not what it was. And and sort of there's an element to it. um, And... If he is listening, I love you, Pa. I hope to uh, not be offensive with this. But um, of a sense of maybe giving up on something where I'm like, no, crack on. You can be like Robert Marchand, the uh, the French, um, however old he is now, our record holder. We shouldn't give up in at that stage. Or is he actually right? Is he kind of just always going to get really significantly slower now so there's less point in trying? You're both, no, you're both right. You're absolutely right. He shouldn't give up. He should. He should definitely crack on, and he should, you know, he should double down on his resolve if he enjoys it. If if that's what he enjoys, he should definitely do that. But he should also be cognizant of the fact that his heart rate, his max heart rate, is going to decline every year. That's just how it happens, and that's why our power decreases over time. But he can offset that. There's several things, little things he can put in place to try and offset that, and still, you know, improve. The big headwinds are sarcopenia or muscle fiber loss well he can go to the gym and do leg strength work to offset that and also the heart rate is declining over time well there's things he can do to offset that you know he can change his training he can adjust his goals so there's all kinds of things you can do which means he should definitely should definitely never give up as long as he's still enjoying the process so with the heart rate one's an interesting one so that i mean yeah that's that's pretty you know that's cut and dried medically speaking that your heart rate is going to decline Ultimately, you know, if not year on year, definitely decade by decade. There's an old rule of thumb that your max heart rate is 220 minus your age. How accurate is that? And how useful is it to hold on to a number of this is my max, max heart rate? I must be able to achieve this at any given time. Well, the, the 220 minus your age is, is accurate for some people and completely wide of the mark for a lot of people. So it's, it's, only, it's only useful in the sense that it's showing you that things are declining it's not it's not as, as an absolute metric it's not very good um and trying to hold a heart rate i mean i think that i, I definitely wouldn't be doing that at your age fine you the two of you 
you know, you you know, you, you can't do any damage really. I don't think um, I could be wrong about that, but I don't think so. You know, so at my age, sixty, still trying to hit one seventy-five beats per minute. Yeah, I don't think that's a great idea. Um, I, you know, for me, I would use heart rate as a limiter rather than a target, personally. Uh, and I and, and I absolutely never ever go anywhere near my theoretical maximum. I mean, it's just because I don't need to to enjoy what I'm doing. What what's what's better for me to do is is double down on where I'm still good, which is the mid range performance. You know, it, becoming a better endurance athlete. All about endure. Um, and so for me, it's better to double down on becoming a person that is better, you, you know, you being oxidative um, and uh, building up the mitochondria, my old muscles. The max heart rate thing, does it does it matter if you can't get any of your hypothetical max heart rate? So, again, using myself as a case study, I should be able to hit 197 beats per minute. I've never ever been able to get over 180 even as a max heart rate um but I've still been able to perform to you know I've still been able to climb uh you know short climbs in Flanders reasonably fast I've you know pushed my body to what I would suppose is its limits to you know where you almost fall off the bike but I'll check back on my heart rate and I'll be like, oh, I, I got to like 178, 179. Does it, does it matter that I can't, I'm not, you know, getting to my hypothetical max at all? No, absolutely not. I mean, as I said, it's like it's only that 220 minus your age is great for some people. And for other people, it's just it's way wider the mark. For you, it's wider the mark, Joe. Um, so I would, you know, I would suggest, you know, that so heart rate for you you know, as long as it, 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 heart rate for you is useful, as long as you're, because you know you're accurate to yourself. You know, you don't expect yourself to get to 190 because you can't, or 197. Um, so, it, and also there's a lag on heart rate monitors. So, you know, you know, if you're trying to push on a hill and trying to get your heart to 197, you know, you probably miss the moment because, by, you know, there's a, there's a lag on heart rate monitors. We've discussed the importance of sleep how the effects of alcohol can have on you, whether you should be tracking power or heart rate, etc. One one other issue I think a lot of our listeners and myself have is with, is with food and the bike. One thing I've heard from a lot of different people, from professionals down to, you know, just people that commute to work, is that because I'm riding all the time, I can eat what I want. I'm always confused as to whether that's an accurate claim because you are riding 300 to 400 kilometers a week it doesn't matter if you're eating poorly because ultimately you're burning off those calories yeah uh, that's a good question i guess i think both things are right joe if you're riding 400 kilometers a week three to 400 you know i mean a sense in a sense you you know you you are burning those calories you're burning a lot of calories but I think it's a question of there is a there is a there is if you're eat, eating really rubbish food um, and that's how you're getting your calories. There is a consequence to eating rubbish food that extends beyond the fact that you might be burning those calories off. So that's the first thing to, to you know, that food itself has consequences outside of calories. So that's the first thing. And second is it's a question of what training you're doing. If you go out there and, and you're always absolutely beasting yourself blasting yourself your heart rate's always wanging on the rev limiter 
and that's your 300 kilometers, well, there's not a lot of opportunity there for your body to burn fat as a fuel source. You know, your body, you're working too high a rate. Your body can't actually metabolize that as a fuel source. Now, sure, it's all going to get kind of mixed up. And in the general scheme of things, you'll be burning, you know, your body's going to recover. But if you want to burn fat as a fuel source, you have to, bur- you have to ride in a certain way that your body can actually metabolize that fat. Now, that's different for all of us. Uh, but you kind of need to know, you know, you'll, you'll have an idea yourself. Are you someone that struggles to, to keep weight on or you struggle, someone struggles to keep weight off, you know, and, and we all know where we are on that scale. Um, and that tells you how efficient you are at burning fat as a fuel source and, and where you should be riding in terms of heart rate or RPE to be burnt, to, to be metabolizing fat. Now, for me, I know that if I want to burn fat as a fuel source, I actually have to keep my I actually have to ride at quite a low level. I'm not particularly good at burning fat as a, at a at a at a high level, and other people I know, you know, they 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 can produce be burning fat really quite close to their theoretical red line. So I mean, you know, just just to uh, kind of um, galvanise ourselves against this um, imminent decline, what advice do you would you give to your average cyclist, average amateur cyclist who is you know they're they're in their middle forties, looking towards fifty? What advice? would you give them to kind of uh, keep them going and what might be one or two areas where they could just make a few little tweaks to steel themselves against the coming decade? Buy the book, turn to chapter <laughs> eight, turn to chapter very eight. Very good, very good. I mean, yep. it's all in there. But two things, don't think of their athletic self outside of their, the rest of their life their responsibilities to their family and their work and their friends. Think of, think of their athletic persona as not something that's discreet from everything else. It, it's all integral. All those dots join up. If there's somebody that drinks lots of coffee, drinks lots of alcohol, is very stressed um, and then takes, you know, this kind of drive and aggression to the bike, um, it, you know, it's all connected. There's going to have to, there's going to be, have to be a moment where they, you know, they rest, and restore and recover and uh, so be nice to themselves is what i'm saying really um that you know you can't just keep hammering at 11 tenths all the time in every area of your life and expect all things to improve all the time that all these parts of themselves are connected inevitably for all of us but as we get older you know the osmosis between those parts of yourself is leakier probably a bad metaphor no, great metaphor. I like it. Do you? I do. I do. I like. Yeah. I like. I like any. I like metaphors around the sea and the containment of water, um, as and us as vessels. So I'm. I'm big into that. But just thinking as well, like when you, you know, you'll have lots of friends, your peers, your age. What do you? And you'll be talking about, you know, everything from, yeah, how much coffee you're drinking, uh, to how well the business is going, to um, bike life, family life. And things will come up. What are those little bits that pop into your head, do you think? If you just made that little change, just a little tweak, you get a lot more out of that thing that we're sitting around kind of moaning about ultimately. I think the piece of advice I try and take um, is that if I go out on the bike and I just and it, it feels right to me to push hard as an antidote to other shit that's going on, you know, stressed, had an argument with my wife, you know, dog's got split his paw again i've got a 500 pound vet bill 
you know, if if all that shit's layered on and it feels good to me to push on the bike and just get rid of it and purge it out, great. If but if the opposite is true and it's just I've just got too much pain and anguish and and it actually just feels right to me to sit back on the bike and listen to birdsong and look at nature and just allow, you know, listen to myself there, you know. And more often than not at my age, when I'm laden with this stress and tired and lack of sleep and you know, then it sometimes more often now with me, it feels better just to sit back, take a breath, take some fresh air and try and depower my sympathetic nervous system than to go the other way, which was like, right, let's do three criteriums this weekend and really smash myself senseless. That felt better then than it does now. And it's just, but be, be honest with yourself. Actually, no, I feel great. I'm just going to smash it out myself. Great. Have at it. But be honest with yourself. And I think that's the best advice I can give to somebody who's an athlete at my age or, you know, 45, 60, whatever, 70. It's just be true to yourself there in that moment. How do I feel? Now, do you know what? It just feels good for me just to take a moment, take a, you know, enjoy my bike, enjoy the ride, enjoy the sunshine, enjoy the nature, but not to hurt, not to hurt myself because I've got other pain going on elsewhere. Or no, do you know what? This pain feels good as an antidote to that pain. But know the difference, know the distinction. Does that make sense? It does. I hope both of our fathers are listening, Joseph, especially, <laughs> especially mine. So, Phil, thank you so much for your time. That's incredibly insightful. Um, and I've no doubt we'll be back because I feel that the column will run and run in uh, Cyclist Magazine. We aren't just a podcast. We have a magazine. You can still buy some paper from us. Um, and Phil's book is out um, in all good books. So, bookshops book rather not stores we're not american and you can also buy it online from bloomsbury um but phil again thank you and joe i'm going to try and embrace your inner you that's brilliant uh, so there we go james phil cavill a polymath as you were so keen to describe him yes yes indeed i feel like that was one of the most useful episodes of the cyclist magazine podcast we ever had touching on so many subjects that often worry amateurs on the bike perennially in regards to alcohol sleep food the meaning of life um and i've taken from that of course that i can binge drink until the age of 40 without consequence <laughs> yeah no i mean I, th- I think that that's my takeaway too uh, my takeaway is that even being 10 years older than you i'm still considered quite young and i know that i am and i you know i bet if i was if i was older than me and i listened to someone like me saying what i'm about to say i'd be like shut up mate but i do feel older i do feel markedly older over the last five years in terms i, I still of, feel like a child i don't feel like an adult so. i mean you act like a child so that's fine Whereas I act like a child but feel like an adult um, and I do just feel like I recover. I just feel like I'm sort of like less asked to do things mm. generally. I make noises when I sit up from like particularly deep chairs and I have some ablutions. Oh, oh. Yeah. oh yeah, I do think I talk to myself more. Yeah, or I go Brr, if it's cold and there's no one around just to signify to myself it's cold. A bit of a size, you know what I've noticed, I, I do. If we're around, say, like our pair, like mine or Jay's parents or um, uh, friends for lunch, I'm I've got to the whole dad stage of going. Should we make a move? <laughs> when I'm done, <laughs> I, I'm a, should, should we get off? Should we get off then? 
Nice. And I'll, I'll tap the tap the knees and sort of sort of motion to Jade saying, I want to go home because I want to go watch um, Sky Sports. <laughs> I can't do that here. <laughs> I mean, that's the joy. Of, that's one of the true joys of getting older is just not giving, uh, you know, not giving a flying what's A rat's it, towel. Uh, yeah. A rat's, yeah. And just being able to be like, yeah, I'm just going to walk off. I'm just, I'm just going to say goodbye and walk off. And I'm not going to worry about what you think about me because, do you know what? I've got enough worries of my own because I'm an aging cyclist. And tell you what, one one thing, you know, we did talk about it with the food. That was something that I wrote about recently because I do some writing too, you know. Anyway, the point is metabolism doesn't slow down in the way that a lot of people thought it did. Plummeting, you know, the idea that you you hit 50 and you drop off a cliff and suddenly your metabolic rate drops and you start putting on weight. A lot of people talk about that, you know. That's just nature. You put on weight, you get a dad bod because that's nature. And it's not. Your metabolism does drop significantly between uh, the eight, like once you pass 18. But from about 18 to about 55, 60, it doesn't do much declining. See, I've, I, I know a lot of people. So I've, I've always considered myself to have a poor metabolism, despite having quite a, despite doing a lot of exercise. I've never been small, um, but I know people that had terrible diets, did not exercise, and when we were at school were rakes, who I've since seen and have put on a lot of weight. Metabolism is a a very confusing thing. It's a very confusing thing, but, and I am making a lot of assumptions here, and I'm doing this, I'm partly projecting, and I'm also doing this, I am massively judgmental of my own friends. That yeah, on the one hand, you've got someone that's skinny as a rake, and everyone's like, "Oh yeah, you know, Simon's got an incredibly quick metabolism." Yes, Simon probably did have an incredibly quick metabolism, but what Simon stopped doing is running around at break time because he got a job in an office where he sits down for the majority of his eight hours at work, and then he goes and gets on some kind of you know motor motorized transport to go home to then go and sit down for the rest of the day when you're kids like the amount you move around as a kid i think is incredible and we underestimate how that just like nose dies you said it as well you feel like you're 45 because of the pandemic i feel a kind of similar thing because you just don't you just don't have that movement because you're at home a lot of people don't even have stairs at home. I mean, you're just not moving. And you stop moving, you start you start gaining weight. And also your muscles will waste to a degree because you're not using them nearly so much. Chances are you're probably eating more. I don't know. The kind of like the litany of fallout from getting old um, is, is incredible. So I do think we should go back to a structure where basically there is enforced break time. There's like a play area in most offices. Correct. I, I would be very much of that and you sit in your little gangs and your little groups and don't mix with others um and then and then ultimately someone who's more senior than you steals your football and you can't get it back until the end of lunch because yeah and occasionally there should be like an office bully i mean there probably is in certain workplaces so i don't want to make light of it but it's just someone that strolls around occasionally just like nicking your sandwiches and then you're like oi and they're like just stare at you and just walk off eating your sandwich that sounds horrible. It sounds like that actually happened to you. <laughs> <laughs> it probably does. 
Anyway, I mean, we're really getting off topic. Um, but the other thing I was going to say... Solution to that was don't bring in sandwiches, just get school dinners, which I did. Just get school dinners? Yeah, but then so, someone... Tri- then you can't you can't have your sandwich nicked off you if you're not getting a sandwich. If you're getting chicken pie and mash and cabbage from the canteen... Well, you can have those. Someone trip you up when you're walking off with a chicken pie and cabbage tray. That is true. That is that is true. And then you get mass humiliation. Again, that sounds like it's coming from somewhere quite personal for you there, Joe. It comes from a place, Joe. It comes from a place. But uh, yeah, we're massively off topic and we should probably wind this up. But my other big takeaway is the sleep thing. Yeah, that's what that, that, that really resonated with me because I have always felt that I've always wanted to sleep, get up earlier. Even though I know, you know, I'm, I'm a, I consider myself a lark, as he described me, I like to be up and I'm more productive. For example, when it comes to writing for a Cyclist magazine, I will be able to write a feature in the morning. However, you will not be able to get cognitive words out of me from four o'clock onwards. That's true. So I, so whereas I know for yourself, James, you're the opposite, aren't you? You're a, you're a. I remember from seeing you in the office many times. You'll you'll dither about in the mornings sometimes, tinkering with bikes and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But then when it then I would be leaving at say five o'clock on the dot, and that's when you would be in your sort of most heightened state of writing and be head down in a laptop. Yeah. Sort of bashing, bashing out, out words because I desperately wanted to leave at six, and I've been dithering all morning, drinking coffee and tinkering with bikes and fixing punches yeah that's that's basically about it um i don't know but i I think the other thing sometimes is that that feeling where you fall back on these predetermined notions that we have i.e i'm a lark so i'm going to be crap in the afternoon and then of course self-fulfilling you're a bit rubbish in the afternoon or you know i'm getting older and cycling is going to be harder so i may as well just like back off i mean lots of those things you know they can't, they're experiential based and they are true. Equally, that kind of like labeling of yourself as being a thing, I find anyway can be really detrimental because then I just like, I allow myself a bit of an easy out in areas where I should just be trying a bit harder. Yeah. Um, and yeah, sleep is one of them, which is like, yeah, I, you know, I just kind of like staying up late and that's just me. It's like, no, it's not actually very good for you. Just go to bed earlier and eventually you will adjust to sleep, you know, by that hour or so. And it will pay dividends. And like you, my friend, I gave up alcohol. I've done it a couple of times for like a good like three months. And it seems ridiculous to say um, because I'm now, you know, imbibing on a regular basis. But it just improved so many aspects of my life. I lost weight. My sleep was great. I sprung out of bed in the mornings, you know, comparatively where I'm just like, I wake up and like, bing, I'm on. What am I going to do? There's no like, bing, ah, that was just the alarm going off. I want to go back to sleep. Should probably make myself, yeah, I, yeah, I mean, the, the benefits of not drinking for me in these last six weeks have been massive. You know, not only the weight loss, but being functionable on a Sunday morning to go out and properly train. There's no lag in terms of me getting up to sleep. I'm, um, you know, I feel fresher. My skin's better. Um, but on the flip side, is Guinness's class and it tastes well nice so I really miss it and I really miss like drinking snake bites because again they're delicious no but the thing is you're you're right um 
and yeah, that speaks to like Phil's point. It's that socialising thing because it's great, like living that monkish existence and patting yourself on the back because you're getting up at six a.m. to go riding at six at seven, and you're feeling great about it, and you're having at it and stealing a march on the day. It's all well and good, and then it comes to Saturday night, and then your mates want to go to the pub. And I tell you what, and this is maybe just because I'm weak-willed, but going and sitting in a pub and not drinking alcohol, it's like, what's the point? I've been doing it every. I've been doing it every Saturday. Every Saturday after football, I go back to the pub. Everyone else is having a pint. I'm there with my lime and soda. Yeah, I'll have four lime and sodas, and I'll just it's it's difficult. And because I don't think you realise how good a packet of crisps tastes after four pints. Yeah, and I don't think you realise. Unbelievable. I don't think you realise how boring you and your mates become after four pints. You realise how annoying people become. Yeah, after drinking. When you're not yeah. drinking, you realise how annoying yeah. the conversations are and you want to check yourself out because you're like, I honestly yeah. can't, couldn't care less. You're being really annoying yeah. right now. But then what's nice is you do want to check yourself out. So then you do check yourself out and you can go to bed nice and early and you can, <laughs> you can repeat the process. And you don't, you, don't, you don't get a portion of chips on the way home. Oh, and doesn't that portion of chips taste good? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know what? On the flip, it's probably quite quite good that i've given up alcohol and you know not long left now only another four weeks five weeks of doing it and then i can get back on the wagon Wee. <laughs> Wee. And guinness is your uncle oh by that by then it'll be spring guinness season will be over i'll be on the 1664s or the uh oh is that is that what happens in spring gin, gin and tonics yeah red wine season's over so, you keep to a very Catholic calendar, don't you? I do. I do when it comes to food and drink. Yeah. Yeah, you got I'll, I'll be eating a lot of white fish and uh, <laughs> drinking a lot of 1664. Perfect, with some uh, unleavened bread. Yeah, and some asparagus, because doesn't that come into season in spring? I don't know. Lamb. Lamb. Eating lamb. Um, yeah, I was going to. Yeah, lamb. Lamb and lamb stuffed with asparagus and copious. <laughs> Pints of Cronenberg. Anyway, we should we, we should, should crack on. Though. We should crack on and wrap <laughs> it up. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode. As we said, Phil Cavill's book, The Midlife Cyclist, is out now in all good bookshops on Bloomsbury's website and as an audio book. So you know, consume it however you want. Uh, Lindsay, our producer, thanks again for putting this episode together and cutting all of our terrible ramblings and sorting with all of our issues. Uh, James. It was great to record with you again. An absolute pleasure, a privilege, as always. Um, and I'll probably talk to you again in the not very distant future. You can only hope. This episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast is brought to you by Hammerhead. The Hammerhead Karoo 2 is a GPS cycling computer like no other, which can unlock your rides to the full potential. James, which Karoo 2 feature stands out for you? Well, Joe, it's Karoo's mapping and navigation capabilities. No matter where in the world I'm riding my bike, Hammerhead says I can ride in full confidence with turn-by-turn navigation, have my route instantly rerouted if I decide to explore a new road, and even find a local coffee shop with its cycling-specific points-of-interest mapping feature. For a limited time, our listeners can get a free custom colour kit and an exclusive premium water bottle with the purchase of a Hammerhead Karoo 2. All you have to do is visit hammerhead.io right now, add all three items to your cart, and use the promo code 
cyclist pod at the checkout to get yours today. This is an exclusive limited time offer only for our podcast listeners. So don't forget to use our special promo code. That's hammerhead.io promo code cyclist pod. That's promo code cyclist pod and get your Karoo 2 and your free custom color kit and premium water bottle today.